This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Eight years ago, shortly after my family and I moved to Northern California, I shadowed a class of fifth grade students on an environmental education field trip. The day was arranged into stations, one on native grasslands, one on birding, one on creek ecology. In the oak turning to ponderosa pine foothill forest was a station taught by Allie Meters Knight, a plantswoman and member of the Native American Machupta tribe. Using a circular board covered with diverse native plants, nuts, woods, and roots arranged by seasons, she asked questions and described how her culture used each plant for food, for medicine, for everyday products, and for ritual. She explained harvesting wild plants from the same location season after season in such a way that the plants increased through division and distribution and weeding out competitors so that each year the harvest was improved. I remember thinking, well, that's gardening, just not in the way I was taught gardening. And then thinking, I want to take this class. With books and articles read and classes and lectures attended since then, I've become more deeply interested in the present tense nature of this lens on gardening knowledge and skills. It was while reading the winter 2015 issue of Heirloom Gardener, dedicated to a theme of America's first seeds, the heirloom seeds cultivated by Native Americans for agriculture and gardening around the country, that I came across the work of Dr. Elizabeth Hoover of Brown University. One thing I have learned, slowly, through time and experience, is this. If I want to metaphorically take this class, it's almost always right in front of me for the asking the listening and learning, for the acknowledging and the appreciating. Every person in tradition come with their own stories, practices, and plants that comprise what it is to garden, what a garden looks like. Each history and perspective can expand our individual understanding of a greater whole. Dr. Elizabeth Hoover is the Manning Assistant Professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Dr. Hoover's work includes issues of environmental health and justice in Native American cultures, indigenous food movements, and community-engaged research. The focus of her second book project, From Garden Warriors to Good Seeds, is particularly compelling to me. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. So I was doing some background research on gardening in Native American cultures. It is very much an aspect of the indigenous communities of our area here in Northern California. And I came across your website, GardenWarriorsGoodSeeds.com. And knowing already, after having looked through your website a little bit, your impressive academic achievements, I was really moved by how you identified yourself and I'm quoting here from the website. I'm a gardener, a bead worker, fancy shawl dancer, and then a professor. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about your journey in life that leads you to describing yourself in this context as a gardener first. I grew up in upstate New York, um, up in the mountains west of Albany, and my family always had big gardens. And so that was something that we always did growing up. That's how we ate in the summer, and then we pickled and canned and froze everything, and that's how we ate in the winter and had chickens and turkeys and uh, goats and pigs and, and all kinds of food that uh, we ate that way. And then on the weekends, I would head out with my mom to, to powwows, and so that's where I got the, the gardening during the week and the fancy shawl dancing that you just mentioned on the weekend. 
Um, and so when I was in high school, my original plan was to be a farmer when I grew up because I wanted to be outside all the time, and that seemed like the best job to be able to do it. And then I think it was about my junior year of high school, we got a new guidance counselor who came in who had been working at another school. And this was in the, in the 90s, in the early 90s, and she said, you know, farming is not doing that well right now in upstate New York. Maybe you should think about trying out a few other, you know, schools to maybe look into. And, and she got me to apply to Williams College in western Massachusetts. And then she helped me to pick out my schedule for the, my first semester once I got in there. And she encouraged me to take the intro to anthropology class. And I did. And then I just kept going to school. And I, I wound up, I graduated from Brown in 2010 with a PhD in anthropology. And so now I spend time with farmers in other ways. And so I've been working for a long time um, with a group up in Akwesasne. It's a Mohawk community on the New York-Canadian border with a farming organization there called Ganahio Yungwaya Dohage. We are planting good seeds. And so I, you know, I got involved with them because I love farming and I was spending a lot of time up there. And so I did a lot of you know pulling weeds and planting seeds and learning more about heritage seeds and the importance of planting the seeds that come from the, the place where you are and that your you know, relatives have passed down for a long time. And it was in the, you know, through that work with these guys and, you know, these conversations around kitchen tables over cups of coffee, thinking about how do other organizations work through some of the, the challenges that we were thinking about? How do other native gardening groups find funding? Or, you know, how are they able to involve youth more in some of these kind of issues? <clears throat> And so that's what got me going to some of these different food sovereignty summits that have been organized through the First Nations Development Institute and the Intertribal Ag Council. Um, there's been a few that have been hosted out at Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. And these are these amazing conferences where you know, hundreds of Native people from gardening projects all over the country and other types of food sovereignty projects come together and, and talk about these issues and talk about you know, what their successes and challenges have been. So through meeting people at these conferences, I then decided to put together this project of you know, going on a road trip and seeing their gardens. It's one thing to see people's PowerPoint presentations mm -hmm. about their projects, but I wanted to go see them in person and talk to people on the ground about you know, how are they um, working through these challenges, what are their, their favorite successes have been, you know, how do people define what is a heritage seed, what makes that different from one community to the next, or... You know, people talk a lot about food sovereignty and academics you know, spend a lot of time talking about this, but what does that mean on the ground to people who are working on these issues? And so that's what sort of set me on this tour, this project, this, uh, you know, taking my beadworking, gardening, fancy shawl dancing professor self on the road to try to learn more about these issues. In that first summer of 2014, you set yourself and your partner, videographer Angelo Baca, a goal of visiting as many indigenous gardening projects as you could get to in three months, documenting gardening and cultural stories, their challenges and solutions, and then collecting them in one place on the website so that people like me can see them and hear them. GardenWarriorsGoodSeeds.com is the website. In what feels like close to real time, you and Angelo tell these stories forward. You've visited many more sites since then. What are some of the stories you still hold from that first summer? This 
also, I think some of the, the really creative ways that, you know, people are so determined to make some of these projects work. And so, you know, part of the parameters of, you know, which projects that we went to visit was I wanted them to focus specifically on gardening. And so there's a lot of other food sovereignty projects that fall outside of this and that they were community-based projects. So we didn't necessarily go to visit people who, you know, were individual farmers for a living. And so that are working to try to get people more involved in the planting, in the, you know, eating the food that comes out of it. So a lot of these projects are trying to address health problems in communities where you know, there's a lot higher rates of diabetes than among other ethnic groups. And um, yeah, just the, the creative ways that they're trying to get these projects funded, getting more people involved, and trying to preserve some of these amazing seeds. Yeah. And so each of these projects went about that in a different way. So for example, the Nisqually tribe in Washington is not a community that was traditionally farmers in the same way that the Hopi or Haudenosaunee people were. That you know, that's a very important part of the culture. You know, gardening is something kind of new up there. But they use this project to not only create produce to then you know give out to the community and have farmers markets, but developed kind of a vocational rehab program. And so there, you know, when they have community members that are coming out of drug rehab or coming out of prison and don't have work records and are you know, having a challenge finding jobs that they can get into or you know, working themselves back into the community, that this was a project that provided that safe space for people so they could be there working with other people, working through you know, issues of sobriety, and could get work experience that way that they can then translate into other jobs when they finish there. So it was kind of a neat way of you know, taking care of different you know, issues in the community simultaneously through this garden. So that what I thought was kind of a neat program. And most of these projects did have a three-part mission, right, of addressing health, cultural preservation, and food sovereignty. Define what you mean by food sovereignty for us. It's, it's tricky because, you know, I've done these presentations that I took all these interviews from people and I asked them, you know, what does food sovereignty mean here? And, you know, now that I've spent so much time, you know, in my head in this term, um, the way that people explained it, they kind of broke it down on three levels, that there's an individual level of food sovereignty where, you know, you're responsible for what you choose to put in your mouth is what some of the interviewees decide, you know, focused on, mm -hmm. that, you know, you need to take responsibility for what you're eating. Um, other people took issue with that to some extent because they said, well, what people have access to be able to put in their mouth is not the same across the board. And so the next level was, you know, community. On the community level, to what extent are people making sure that the entire community has access to healthy food, um, that, you know, they have access to culturally relevant food, that they're able to access the land that they need um, to have the experience and the knowledge that they need to get food off the land. And so that was sort of the, on the community level, to what extent does everybody have access to the necessary food? And then on a, a political kind of higher up level, to what extent are tribal governments supporting food projects in the community? So that's something that, you know, the University of Arkansas, Janie Hip has a, a program there to try to help tribal communities develop their own food policies to make sure that what they're enforcing is something that, you know, fits what their food producers are doing. Um, trying to get people to support local food producers better. And so, you know, are the, the tribal schools, are they locked into contracts with Sodexo? Or are they, you know, do they have the kitchen facilities and are they able to be more flexible and buy food from 
local producers. Mm -hmm. And then also maintaining treaty rights is something that was really important in some areas. And so Valerie Seagrest, up to the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project in Washington, really highlights this when she gives presentations. You know, talking about when her ancestors signed these treaties, something that they made sure of in each of these was, okay, we're going to give up some of this land as long as we still have access to gather food there that we always did. And so that's something that, you know, in, in communities in the Midwest as well, so different Ojibwe communities have been fighting to maintain those treaty-insured rights to go gather things like wild rice on land that they should have access to and, and you know, purposely get arrested every year so that they can point out that, no, look, you know, we have access to this and it's guaranteed through treaties. And so making sure that, you know, tribal um, governments are there supporting their members in trying to exercise these treaty rights. And so food sovereignty kind of, you know, it involves all these different levels. Um, it entails culture, so making sure that, you know, these foods that have specific meanings within tribal communities are still you know, made available to people and sharing that knowledge around the cultural context of that food. So whether it's creation stories or, you know, the specific names for food and making sure that those names persist. Um, people talked about sustainability as part of food sovereignty. So, you know, on one hand, sustaining the environment that produces your food and making sure that you're, you know, harvesting it and growing it in a sustainable way, but then also thinking seven generations ahead, so making sure that these programs are really targeting the youth who will then grow up and want to maintain and you know, take care of these gardens and those seeds. So I found the story entitled Thoughts from a Hopi Farmer really intriguing. The issues of heritage native seeds being held in federal seed banks, the issues of access to these seeds, and how seeds can only adapt and evolve with the land through the dynamic processes of growing. This had never really occurred to me in these ways. Yeah, I think most of the, the seed banks, the issue wasn't as much around getting the seeds back. So through organizations like Native Seed Search, who mm -hmm. in, you know, in Arizona, who have collected seeds from all over kind of the, the southwest and the Sonoran Desert area and kind of, you know, southern, southwestern U.S. and northwestern Mexico. And I heard various um, responses to organizations like that. So some communities were really grateful to have access to that. So you know, people at an Apache farming project had gotten sunflower seeds back that were no longer in their community, and they were glad to have a resource to be able to write to them. So pretty often, if you, you know, write to Native Seed Search and, and tell them the type of project that you're doing, they will send you those seeds. Um, people in other communities had different ideas around if a seed taken out of, you know, for example, a Hopi community is then kept in storage there, and, you know, replanted by the employees there, you know, because they grow their seeds out every couple of years mm -hmm. to make sure that they're viable. Is it still a Hopi seed? If you don't sing over it, if you don't, you know, pray over it, if you don't feed it and treat it in a certain way, is it still a Hopi seed or is it just a seed that was sort of descended from that may have the same genetic material but doesn't have that same spirit? So there were, you know, different opinions and people you know, across, you know, Indian country in general, um, the, the different things that are coming up around seeds are really different. So you have some communities that never lost their seeds that are still part of their everyday growing. So, for example, you know, Cochiti Pueblo, we saw some beautiful corn there, and they didn't mind if, you know, the corn 
crossed a little bit. And so, you know, he showed us, you know, Jason Romero there with the, the Coach D Youth Program, showed us some beautiful ears at their house. And, you know, it was okay if the blue crossed a little with the white and back and forth. They had this very dynamic living relationship with the corn and their seeds. And then, you know, talking to seed savers, you know, have told me about working with other communities where, you know, people have just a little handful of seeds left and they're really concerned about, you know, keeping those seeds pure and planting them just for seeds. And the concern then is, you know, corn can get inbred just like animals and people. And so the danger then of treating these seeds in too precious of a way and, and not letting, you know, other genes come in. And, you know, and then on the other hand, you have people, especially in the Midwest, who are really concerned about GMOs yeah. coming in and contaminating their seeds. So corn pollen can spread up to a mile. And what happens then if, you know, there's a farmer in the area who's got all of his, you know, pioneer corn planted, and then you are, you know, a short ways away with your you know, community's heritage corn that people have really had to address that challenge. So, like, when we stopped in to see Dream of Wild Health in Minnesota, they had little corn condoms on all of their corn. So they had gone around and hand-pollinated to make sure that their Dakota flower corn stayed true in that way and that they weren't getting, you know, random GMO corn pollen flying into it. Yeah, which is an issue for everybody, but with that kind of heritage on the line, far more urgent. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Hoover, creator of GardenWarriorsGoodSeeds.com, documenting Native American community gardening across the country. We'll be right back after the break. Thank you for joining us. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Hoover, Manning Assistant Professor of American Studies at Brown University. Before the break, we began discussing the work of her second book project, GardenWarriorsGoodSeeds.com, based on visiting and documenting Native American community gardening projects around the country. Welcome back. I was looking at a, a video where you're li- we're hearing from Julia Parker and her cultivation of different plants in their native environments um, for basket weaving and dyeing materials. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the the both very ornamental but also for utilitarian purposes aspect of the gardening culture. Very ornamental. So when um, I say that, I'm thinking about the way that Julia Parker or, or any basket weaver doesn't just make a basket. Mm-hmm. They make this incredibly beautiful work of art that's very speaks very much of their individuality as well as their cultural individuality. 
Yes, I mean, TOCA, the Tahana Atom Community Action, has a conference every two years in Arizona that is the, like, Native Chef and Food Projects and Basketry Conference. And so they very much bring together those elements. And, you know, this past year they had a modern dancer come who was a fifth-generation basket weaver. Her name was Annie. And she did this beautiful dance kind of going through, you know, what it meant to collect those materials and to create a basket. And so, and then those baskets are then used to, to harvest and gather and store food. And so the connections between some of these are, are really cool. But, and even, you know, thinking about what is a garden. So I went out there with this very specific idea that, you know, gardens are where you're digging things up and you're planting things in the ground. And then getting to places like in the Northwest where there's such a gathering culture. Mm-hmm. And so the, at the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project, you know, Valerie will say, well, the forest is our garden, you know, that she can go out there into the forest and recognize where Muckleshoot people were 100 years ago based on, you know, a critical mass of medicinal and food plants, so the way that people encouraged what we would otherwise think of as wild plants to grow in different places so that they would be available. Or, you know, you think of wild rice as though people just sort of head out there once a year and see what they can find and, you know, just gather it up. But, you know, the people there talk about how Ojibwe people and Dakota people for a long time maintained the levels of the water and would go out and, you know, pull out and still go out and pull out invasive weeds and really sort of control when people go out there and how much rice is harvested. So you think of it as just sort of this gathering. But at the same time, you know, people like Bruce Savage at the Spirit Lake Native Farms is trying to get some agricultural grants for his project and hasn't been able to because people don't see what he does as agriculture. You know, but what he and and people like the Intertribal Ag Council are arguing is that, no, we need to reframe what we see as agriculture because this is an important part of food production for Mm -hmm. that community. So by the end of the summer, I sort of had expanded what I saw as gardening or what people counted as as agriculture in, in that context. Yes, because the way that seeds are harvested and then in many cases redistributed or um, or as you say, encouraged, is, is very clearly a cultivation technique. And... and then some people are kind of combining it. So the Cultural Conservancy has a, a farm in California where, you know, part of it is a very kind of traditional-looking garden with rows of vegetables, and then they have another section that's devoted to you know, wild plants of California, and specifically, you know, basketry plants and wild food plants. And so it's this separate area where it's like, okay, here we have our very organized garden, and then here we're trying to encourage plants to do their thing and be able to have elders who maybe can't get out to some of these places be able to come here and gather these. So tell us a little bit about your home garden, Elizabeth. So right now I live in a city in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, So this past year my home garden was on my deck, and I would kind of travel and and visit other people and work in their gardens. But we've been lucky in that I'm, I'm working here with some of my colleagues to develop a Native American Indigenous Studies program. And so it's sort of slow going right now, but we've been given some space over at the Urban Environmental Lab, um, which is one of the, the homes of the Environmental Studies Department here. And they have opened up space for us in that building and a, a garden plot there. They have raised bed gardens and the greenhouse. And so the students and I are pretty excited about the opportunity of being able to, to garden in the ground this year. And what are you 
dreaming of planting there. I know, right? Like the possibilities. <laughs> There's only um, so many more that you want to plant than you can plant in the are. space you have. I personally would love to get some cranberry beans out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a wonderful red Haudenosaunee heritage bean um, that doesn't give you gas like regular beans. So that's pretty exciting to, to have access to that. Um, so, And I'd like to you know, check in with some of the students and see what they'd like. I have uh, some Boston marrow squash seeds that I would love to, to get in the ground. So that's another... Haudenosaunee heritage variety. It, it looks almost like a Hubbard squash, but it's kind of yellower, but it's a big winter squash like that. So, yeah, some of those I would definitely love to, to get out of that garden. And probably, you know, I'd have to get some corn in there, too, so I can have an official three sisters as long as I've got the, the corns and the, the beans and the squash there. So I'll have to decide which corn to, to pair with them. I was also interested, in, and I think maybe this is a, a good a good final question for you is um, I've been reading recently Robin Wall Kimmerer's mm-hmm. Braiding Sweetgrass mm-hmm. and um, also in a couple of the interviews on your website it kept coming back to me. Um, she makes this very interesting um, statement on the different ways that different peoples treat the world based on their their creation stories. And how and the stark differences between the creation stories of, um, you know, Adam and Eve who get in trouble and get kicked out of the garden (laughs) versus the creation stories of her culture, uh, which has a similarity to other Native American, you know, creation stories of there being a woman who fell from the sky Mm -hmm. and in her pockets she had seeds and um, the help of the, the creatures in the water, including the turtle, who um, helped find some dirt for her to put these seeds in, and that basically their entire world is based on a garden. Yeah, so after she lands there on the turtle's back and she spreads this dirt around, she gives birth to a daughter who grows up and becomes pregnant and gives birth to twins and dies in childbirth. And she buries that daughter, and from her body comes the corns and beans and squash that I was just talking about. And so it's this beautiful story. And there's a, um, a program, a ceremony up at Akwazesni now that this clan mother has worked really hard to revive. It's a rites of passage ceremony where the youth come together and as a cohort and spend you know four to seven years, and they, they come together and they learn all these important cultural things and, you know, to respect and take care of their bodies. And as part of that, she has them build a Mother Earth garden. And so the boys shape the, this mound of dirt in the shape of a woman's body, and, you know, they, they talk with their uncles about ways of respectfully touching and being around women and taking care of women and you know, being respectful. And then the girls come and plant seeds in that body and, you know, talk about the importance of you know, taking care of their fertility and taking care of these seeds, which are like babies. You know, you have to come back and take care of them and water them and, and help them to, to grow and flourish. And so it's this sort of beautiful way that they've incorporated the creation story into, you know, these rites of passage programs and ceremonies and getting kids to think about, you know, the importance of gardening and food and seeds, but then also, you know, respecting each other and respecting their bodies. It's, um that's pretty powerful stuff, this idea that, gardening and gardens and seeds are foundational to our our whole worldview. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Elizabeth Hoover, Manning Professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. Best of luck with the Garden Warriors Good Seeds Project. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Next week, the conversation continues with Mary Pat Matheson and George DeMann, the current president and founding president, respectively, of the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, which in April of this year will reprise an exhibit of glass sculptures by artist Dale Chihuly throughout the garden. They both bring a slightly different and not particularly plant-based perspective on how gardens and gardening can bring meaning to the people who enjoy them. Join me then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schultz. More information, photographs, and podcasts can be found weekly at mynspr.org. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.